they continued their uh, foreign counterintelligence operations under FISA. They went through archive data and they vigilantly kept track of any parallel evidence within other FBI divisions, such as financial crimes and sex crime units. When I arrived at the FBI in September 2001, Four FBI agents from three field offices had been stuck at a very crucial stage. Translating, sorting, and selecting certain data gathered from certain foreign counterintelligence operations, and then combining that with data collected via non-FISA divisions in order to move up to the next phase. You see, the powers above on purpose had eliminated these agents' access to qualified and trustworthy linguists and analysts. A couple of times, those from the upper echelons had brought in linguists who were on loan to the FBI from the CIA and or Pentagon. But the agents found the linguists to be tainted props meant to hinder their investigation rather than furthering it. To make a long story short, Within a few days after, I began working for the FBI, despite the high number of pseudo-terrorism-related cases assigned to me, a large block of my time was taken over by a dedicated FBI counterintelligence agent in Washington, D.C. field office, and before long, I was assigned to their tightly kept project pursuing prosecution of highly criminal U.S. officials. As we dug... As I re-reviewed, translated, and analyzed, we came up with a mother load of needed evidence. To put it in perspective, one evening in late October of 2001, I received an electronic data transfer from the corresponding agent in the FBI's Chicago field office, which contained more than 5,000 pieces of intelligence from Chicago operations alone, collected between 1996 and 2001. So yes, with those, Chicago having the most implicating criminal evidence, and others, D.C. and New Jersey offices, we came up with a mother load of needed evidence. Lo and behold, this was when whole hell broke loose. For those of you who are not familiar with my whistleblowing case, I recommend that you read Classified Woman, the Sabelle Edmonds' story. Around mid-December 2001, first the FBI's Chicago office, then the Washington, D.C. field office, counterintelligence units, were ordered by the Bush administration's White House, via Attorney General John Ashcroft's Department of Justice, to freeze the counterintelligence operations in question and seal all data that implicated U.S. persons. You see, the CIA and the State Department, through their plans, the pseudo-linguists and analysts they loaned to the FBI, had been apprised of the situation and had urgent reasons to see it terminated. You know why? Remember the implicated appointed U.S. officials I named early on in this episode? Richard Pearl, Douglas Feet, Mark Grossman, etc.? Well, in the new administration, the George W. Bush White House, these individuals were promoted and given much higher level positions. 
we are looking at highly implicated criminals in espionage and criminal cases being positioned in very high-level and visible positions. Add to that the fact that the new Pro had started per the Clinton White House directive and that the third implicated many high-level elected Republicans in the U.S. Congress. Additionally, this was post-September 11 terrorist attacks. By late November 2001, with NSA's new powers, the powers no longer needed the FBI for their Pro operations. They no longer needed to worry about FISA or specific directives. They had the NSA with access to anyone, everyone, everywhere, for anything and everything. By January 1st, 2002, the specific counterintelligence operation which I was assigned to officially came to an end. Within a month after that, I came under retaliation for refusing to cover up the truth. A month after that, I testified before several Senate committees and the DOJ Office of the Inspector General, and a few weeks after that, I was fired. Six months later, I became the most classified woman in the history of the United States of America, with two separate invocations of state secrets privilege, official gag orders placed on the U.S. Congress, and much more. The appointed 30s continued on, untouched, completely untouched. The criminal elected officials remained in their positions, unscratched. One of the good lead agents was hushed, demoted, and sent off to Colorado field office. Another one was hushed and then pacified and then rewarded with a major promotion for hushing. Another one got disgusted, retired, and blew the whistle. And the last one remained there until retirement and anonymously reported the case to the DOJ IG. In 2005, I risked it all, and Vanity Fair published its limited expose on Dennis Hastert. They got information and corroboration from at least five other FBI DOJ insiders. Not a single U.S. media outlet provided coverage for this major expose on Hastert at the time, Speaker of the House. Since 1996, the FBI has had tons of information on Dennis Hastert, which was gathered in Chicago by the FBI's Chicago field office. The incriminating criminal evidence in those files range from bribery, extortion, fraud, money laundering, and embezzlement to sexual crimes against minors and participation in foreign-operated drug operations. Since 1997, the FBI has had much hard evidence on Dennis Hastert gathered by the FBI's Washington field office. The documented deeds range from espionage to foreign bribery. But that's not all. The FBI also has had hard data on Hastert's sexual violations outside the United States. The involved countries included Vietnam, Thailand, Turkey, and Morocco, among others. This also included sexual favors as means of foreign bribery. Interestingly, 
the CIA had been documenting those sexual activities outside the United States for many years, and not only on Hastert, but on many others, elected and appointed. Yes, somehow, now, for some reason, due to someone somewhere, it's been decided to bring some significant criminal financial activities and related sexual abuse hush money charges against the same Dennis Hastert. That minus the real implicating facts. And all that with unquestioning assistance from the U.S. media. Now, Sibel Edmonds making a very good point there. I think the complete lack of investigation in the last 10 years since the 2005 Vanity Fair article, which published a lot of Sibel Edmonds' charges and backed them up with corroborating evidence from other whistleblowers, their failure to investigate that over the last 10 years tells me that there is a power at work here which has the power to suppress the media. And who could that be but the deep state. Now, the last one of the four segments, this is from the 18th of October 2015, just 13 days ago. On Thursday, October 15th, our informed predictions came true with the news announcement on Dennis Hastert and the Justice Department reaching a plea deal, thus eliminating the prospect of court trial in the case. Let's go over a few quotes from the New York Times on this new development. Hastert, the small-town wrestling coach who rose to political power as the longest-serving Republican Speaker of the House, intends to plead guilty as part of an agreement in a case where he is accused of skirting banking laws and lying to the federal investigators. The indictment said the withdrawals were used to compensate for and conceal earlier misconduct against the person identified only as Individual A. Unidentified government sources said that the money was used to cover up allegations of sexual misconduct with a male student during Mr. Hester's time as a high school teacher and a coach in Yorkville. Mr. Hastert has not been charged with any sex crimes and the identity of the person he is accused of paying remains unknown. The plea will allow Mr. Hastert, who presided over the House from 1999 to 2007, to avoid a potentially long and embarrassing trial and to keep secret information that he has hidden for years, including the identity of the former student. Okay, obviously, what I have been publicly predicting on this case has come true. But this podcast episode is not going to be wasted on things obvious. Instead, I intend for us to dig and unearth what remains beneath. For this episode, we are going to talk about the intentional and consistent censorship by the United States mainstream media, and pseudo-alternatives in the real case of Dennis Hastert. We are going to list some of the major omissions and blackouts in the case and pose the question, why? A pedophile of the past. The U.S. media intentionally leaves out pertinent and logical questions that follow their limited narrative pertaining to the Hastert case. Questions such as, 
What kind of pedophilic activities was Dennis Hastert engaged in during his years in the U.S. Congress? The media is presenting Hastert and his pedophilic activities as a thing that happened in the past and in a vacuum. Based on their narrative, Hastert's predatory actions stopped once he became an honorable U.S. representative. That the man miraculously saw the light, said hallelujah, and then, well, according to them, then nothing. This is how the narrative goes. This is the U.S. media narrative. Once upon a time, there was a wrestling coach in a high school who preyed upon sexually abused and molested minors. Then he was elected to the U.S. Congress and became the longest-serving Speaker of the House. Later, years after he left Congress, he was caught with his pants down on some trivial financial activities which were linked to his molestation of at least one underage person way back when. There have been zero attempts by the U.S. media to investigate Hester's criminal deeds involving sexual violations of minors during his long congressional tenure. This, despite past exposés and witnesses who had gone on record on Hester's illegal criminal activities, which included not only financial, but also espionage, blackmail, and sex crimes. This, despite the FBI maintaining documented records of Hastert's sexual violations since 1996. Please go and check the media coverage. You will find zero reference to Hastert's ongoing sexual violations both here in the United States, but also overseas during his junket trips to countries such as Turkey, Morocco, and Vietnam you will find zero mentioning of his illegal sexual sessions held in one of his office townhouse residences in Illinois, including foreign and criminal entities bringing in and offering minors as means of bribery. Interestingly, all his residences and offices, and this is Hastert's, were wired and monitored by several different entities, including the FBI, CIA, and at least two foreign lobby networks. More on that later. Omissions and blackout in Hastert's proven criminal records. In 2005, based on testimonies and evidence provided by no less than five credible government insiders, the Vanity Fair magazine published a major expose on Dennis Hastert's criminal activities that included domestic and foreign bribery, money laundering, campaign financial fraud, and even participation in Chicago underground drug networks. At the time, in 2005, not a single U.S. media outlet provided coverage for this massive expose. Not a single sentence was written about this expose at the time involving the case that involved the sitting Speaker of the House. Not a word. Now, fast forward to May 2015 and after. 
you'd think that the U.S. media would refer back to a directly relevant past exposés, such as the Vanity Fair article, and tie it to the Hastert case, right? Which involves financial crimes. No? Well, they did not. They haven't. You will not find a single mentioning of that expose, the Vanity Fair expose, despite its 100% direct relevance. Think about it. The U.S. media has had that 2005 Vanity Fair article with more than five current and former witnesses, government witnesses, who went on record stating that, one, the FBI had been surveilling Dennis Hastert since 1996. Two, that the FBI and the Justice Department had in their possessions implicating documented evidence on Hastert since 1996. Three, that Hastert's criminal activities included espionage, foreign bribery, money laundering, embezzlement, drug networks in Chicago, and more. So why go to such lengths to omit all these related facts? It is not as if they are worried about some legal liabilities. Someone else, another mainstream publication, had already vetted those facts and witnesses, taken that risk, and published it. So why? Intentional censorship of Hastert's wealth. All right. The media keeps rehashing the financial charges faced by Hastert, which includes giving more than $3.5 million hush money to one of the boys he sexually abused when he was a school teacher. We are not talking about some meager dollar amount here, folks. We are not talking about peanuts here. We are talking about $3.5 million. Yet, not a single media outlet is mentioning the sources of Dennis Hastert's multi-million dollar wealth, most of which was accumulated during his congressional tenure. In December 2009, that's right, five and a half years before this limited scandal came public, I wrote a lengthy piece on Dennis Hastert here at Boiling Frog's Post. I will post the link with this podcast episode, so you will have the link. Here are a few quotes from that 2009 article I wrote. The article's title, Dennis Hastert, a portrait of a political system termite. Prior to his two-decade-long career as a congressman, Hastert was a high school teacher in Chicago with a modest family income. Yet, somehow, he managed to become a multimillionaire while in Congress. His financial net worth went from less than $270,000 in 1986 to an estimated $17 million. No, this was not due to a rich wife or a sudden inheritance, nor was it due to winning a lottery. This fortune came about solely as a result of his activities as a political system termite. This political system termite, while hard at work with his comrade termites eroding and rotting the legislative foundation, 
while filling up his personal pockets with hard-earned taxpayers' money and building a fortune, was involved in almost every major scandal involving the Capitol Hill PSD colony during the last decade, from the Jack Abramoff scandal to the Mark Foley disaster, from being pocketed by foreign governments to making millions of dollars in congressionally earmarked land deals. When Hastert, a former high school teacher, was first elected to Congress in 1986, he showed assets worth less than $270,000. By mid-2006, Hastert's net worth had increased to somewhere between $4 million to $17 million. Now, how did this happen? Okay, please read that article, the entire article I wrote on Hastert in 2009, A Political System Termite. Then check and see whether you can find any references to Hastert's known and documented thievery in any of articles written on the man's indictment and guilty plea deal involving his financial crimes. Isn't that amazing? The U.S. media talks about Hastert being charged with financial crimes, Hastert paying over $3.5 million in hush money to those he raped and molested. Yet, they don't talk about how Dennis Hastert ended up with millions of dollars as he served in the United States Congress on a $100,000 salary. Could the media be more belligerently obvious in all their attempts in covering up the real Hastert case? Turning the two-way financial beneficial plea into a one-way deal. The New York Times and the rest of the U.S. mainstream media keep highlighting the benefits of the plea from Hastert's perspective. And they do so with consciously implemented limitations and censorship. Sure, Hastert will be able to avoid airing his pedophilic activities as a teacher way back when. Let's go back and read that last paragraph from New York Times. The plea will allow Mr. Hastert, who presided over the House from 99 to 07, to avoid a potentially long and embarrassing trial and to keep secret information that he has hidden for years, including including the identity of the former student. You see, they are not mentioning the government side. The plea would provide the government with, with what advantages? Now, don't let them use that bull line that says, Oh, the government would save taxpayer money and resources by not having a lengthy trial. Yeah, our government is so conscientious when it comes to caring for taxpayers' dollars. Uh huh. We know our government's track records when it comes to wasting taxpayers' dollars, don't we all? So yeah, don't let them even get near that BS line. Other than that, the U.S. media will not respond to your asking, what does the government get from this plea deal, dude? Government players and past illegalities committed by the DOJ FBI would all see the light of day had the case proceeded in court. 
and it is the same government that does not want Hester's known and documented sexual crimes to become public. Not only would it expose the government's illegal surveillance, government use of illegally collected evidence for their own blackmail purposes, but also the fact that the government, despite its knowledge of Hester's ongoing sexual crimes against minors and many other crimes during his congressional tenure, did nothing to stop and apprehend and prosecute this prick. It would be a crime for the government to let criminal activities like those take place under its watchful eyes and then do nothing about it. It wouldn't only be morally scandalous, but it would get into government liability areas. The judge question. Other than a few blurbs here and there, we have not seen seen much coverage on the judge who is assigned to the Hastert case. Considering the red flags going up all over this judge, one can't help but wonder why. Thomas Durkin the federal judge assigned to preside over the criminal case against Dennis Hastert, has repeatedly in the past donated to Hastert's congressional campaigns. Federal campaign finance records show all that. So obviously, we are looking at a judge who supported, donated to, and voted for the defendant here. There is more. The judge's brother, Jim Durkin, happens to be a prominent figure in the state's GOP leadership. He serves as minority leader in the Illinois House, a post he was elected to in 2013. (laughs) But wait, there is more. Judge Durkin made the donations while he was partner at the private law firm Mayor Brown. Guess what? The Chicago law firm of Mayor Brown happens to be where Hastert's son, Ethan Hastert, is an attorney. Uh Aha! Allow me to read a paragraph from that 2009 article I wrote on Hastert. Also very characteristically, this political system termites larvae, despite their widely known and acknowledged intellectual and reputational challenges have been supported and courted into becoming political system termites within the same colony and its network. Hastert's oldest larva, Joshua, became a lobbyist for Podesta Mattoon with hotshot clients such as Lockheed Martin, and all this while his dad served as the speaker of the political system termite colony, Congress. Another one, Ethan, who was arrested and cited in 2001 on charges of driving under the influence of alcohol and other traffic violations, who also happened to work for Dick Cheney while his dad headed the PSD colony on Capitol Hill, is now running for his father's old seat, set to prove himself a political system termite worthy and qualified for the Capitol Hill colony. Now, the questions of why and how. It is not really difficult to see the lengths to which the U.S. media has gone to black out and censure the most obvious 
and crucial facts and implications pertaining to the Hester case. Interestingly, the censorship and omission apply to both sides of the aisle, left-wing media outlets as much as right-wing ones. It has become one of those very few instances of censorship transcending the partisanship game of divide and conquer. It's been as if there exists a firm agreement between those with stakes and the entire U.S. mainstream media community. Who is at the top orchestrating the case and related coverage? How are they pulling off this uniform, consistent media misinformation and misdirection campaign? Why? These are only a few questions among many, many we need to ask and answer. Now, as usual, some good questions from Sibel Edmonds there, and I don't think we're going to hear any convincing answers from the commercially controlled media. Now, I'm just wondering, 25 years back, were people in general as skeptical of the media, the politicians, the establishment, as they now are? Perhaps this is just a personal echo of my own realizing that I've been living for a long time in a hall of mirrors, but I tend to think, uh, I do spend a lot of time with a younger generation as a teacher, I do tend to think, no, people are more and more maybe not knowing what to do about the fact that the establishment is based on lies, but more and more ready to say, well, yeah, that's the only theory which makes any sense, because the claims of people within the establishment are fatuous on their very face. As an illustration of just what it was possible 25 years ago to suppress, we continue with our adaption of Alan Frankovich's masterful expose of Operation Gladio, an organized international terrorist campaign set up and controlled by forces in charge of the intelligence agencies of the Western nations, particularly, I think, CIA and MI6. This is a mass murderous, taxpayer-funded campaign acknowledged in several European parliaments, and a few people were put in jail, not the string pullers, but the low-level operatives who did what they were told, not the funders. Remember, this is taxpayer-funded. It's the state apparatus which has been co-opted. So there is an element in the nation-states of Europe, openly admitted in Parliament and later in the European Parliament, to have the ability to carry out mass-murderous attacks and go unpunished. This is surely something one might want to talk about on the historical record, thanks primarily to the late, great Alan Frankovich. He's done more than anybody I can think of. Daniela Ganser, also very good historical work, following it up as an academic. If a similar campaign of false flag terrorism were to be discovered now, a quarter century later, would it be quietly thrown stuck behind the sofa of history in a similar fashion. I tend to think, no, that would actually be impossible. Real people would face real legal consequences and enough people would care about 
stopping this to make sure that it got dealt with. If you've got any strong opinions on this, you're welcome to contribute to the discussion on this show. This show has a web page, unwelcomeguest.net slash 725, with a matching talk page for discussion. Now let's continue with part two of Alan Frankovich's Gladio, adapted for radio by the Unwelcome Guests Collective. We continue slightly behind where we left off last time, because I thought I should give you a little bit of context. Erhard Dabringhaus, U.S. Counterintelligence Corps, Germany, 1948-49. to Somebody above me must have been running this network already at that time. Oswald Lewinter. The man in Adenauer's office, who also had, I guess, his uh, fullest confidence, who oversaw Gladio in its earliest stages, was a fellow named Dr. Globke, who was an ex-Nazi, who Adenauer had brought into the government the way he brought a lot of ex-Nazis into the government, because I guess his position was that these were the only people who really had any administrative experience, and uh, so they were... Uh, I guess denazified, if you want to call it that. They were cleaned up a little bit like uh, today, Nazi tomorrow, Democrat, like changing undershirts. William Colby, Knight of Malta, attendee of Le Cercle, and Director of Central Intelligence from 1973 to 1976. What we were doing is either with the government... Uh, secretly or independently on our own looking for people who might perform this function in some country where you didn't have that connection with the government or whatever or maybe you did as a supplement but maybe one or two extra people that uh, would have this training that would stay there during a Soviet occupation and be the base that you could then talk about recruiting other people to join. Oswald Lewinter. There was documentary material when Colby was station chief in Stockholm that he had been in touch with former Swedish volunteers in the Nordic legions of the SS, the Waffen-SS, and people who later came to be known, I guess, as Sveaborg, that he was recruiting these uh, people. The first scandal connected to the stay-behind groups broke in 1952 with the discovery of assassination teams linked to the Bundesdeutsche Jungen. Thomas Polgar, CIA Germany, 1951. In all those countries, some elements of the social democratic or socialist parties aligned themselves with the communists into so-called national unity parties or socialist unity parties. The presumption was that should the Soviet army make a move toward the West, they would try to build some kind of a German puppet government in the German territory which they would occupy. The Bund Deutsche Jugend was a right-wing political organization loosely affiliated with one of the political parties in the state of Hesse in Germany and it was deemed that these people have the motivation and the willingness to serve as part of the underground should the Soviet army indeed overrun all or part of West Germany. 
Now, as part of these preparations against that day, uh, somebody's enthusiasm ran away with his judgment, and they drew up a list of German politicians, including many prominent social democrats, who they thought might be the kind of people that the Soviet army would look for in trying to organize a puppet government. When the story broke, there was a considerable flap, and it was deemed desirable that General Truscott should personally explain to the people involved what had happened. And we explained the situation first to Sansor Konrad Adenauer of Germany, then we explained it to General Matthew Ridgeway, who was then the commander-in-chief of NATO, and finally, and most importantly, we explained it to Prime Minister George Sin of Hesse, who himself was on that list. And Truscott explained to the Hessian Prime Minister that this was an unauthorized activity, to be sure only a paper exercise, but of which he was unaware, and it certainly shouldn't be interpreted as in any way casting aspersions on our confidence in Prime Minister Zinn. Oswald Lewinter. From the beginning, Gladio was really divided into two spheres of influence, British and American, because the, the original agreement between Sir Stuart Menzies and uh, the uh, XOSS people, Wisner and those, had foreseen that the British would retain their sphere of influence in the countries that were traditionally British, such as the Netherlands, Belgium, Portugal, Spain, and the United States had very little to do with those. We'd see, or rather I would see, documents having to do with that, but if anything needed to be done, I would have to contact uh, somebody who had that responsibility in DI6. Senator Roger Lallemand, head of the Belgian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. After the war, the head of the intelligence service, Moses, Moses contacted the Belgian foreign minister for foreign affairs, Mr. Spark. They agreed on the principle of creating a Belgian stay-behind in peacetime aiming to avoid, naturally, the obstacles associated with the stay-behinds during the war. Guy Cohen, Belgian Defence Minister 1988-1991. The relationship between the British and Belgian intelligence services originates in a context which took place between Mr. Spark and the head of the British Intelligence Service, and in the tripartite meeting between the USA, Great Britain and Belgium. Francesco Cossiga, President of Italy from 1985 to 1992. He started in 1951. Americans? 
English and French became concerned with what might happen to Europe if it were invaded. They acted following the example of two major organizations which had organized resistance in Europe against Nazism. The British Special Operations Executive and the American Office for Strategic Services. Senator Roger Lallemand, head of the Belgian Parliamentary Inquiry into Gladio. These networks were set up within the secret services, what we call the secret services, namely military and state security intelligence services. Senator Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian Parliamentary Inquiry into Gladio. There is a huge debate over the legitimacy of Gladio. Constitutionally, Parliament should have been informed. This is the problem. The fact is, even if it were necessary to have secret structures and in international agreements, there are often secret clauses. However, Everything on these secret matters has to be passed on by each former Prime Minister to each new one. The President-elect of the United States spends two months being briefed by the former President. Therefore, the first Prime Minister who authorised Gladio should have passed on information to his successors. This is what should have happened. Instead, we have found that after having questioned those still alive, some of them were informed in a very superficial way. Others were not informed at all. Senator Fanfani, who was Prime Minister six times, Minister of the Interior several times, Secretary of the Christian Democrats, and a very powerful Secretary too, was never informed. According to his testimony, he was never informed. Others were also never informed. Oswald Lewinter. Only those people who were friendly to American aims and policies were made aware of this. Any political leader who was inimical or was untrustworthy knew nothing. Stay behind networks. Stay behind networks were not part of NATO that is, of the integrated military organization. They were established inside the Atlantic Alliance. So even France, after leaving NATO, still took part in Stay Behind. Within NATO itself, there was no coordinating responsibility for Gladio. However, superimposed over NATO, there was a coordinating office in something called ITAC, which was nominally in the Defense Department, Intelligence Tactical Assessment Center, in which there was, were, among other things, a NATO desk. That NATO desk was owned by the agency. Although it was nominally with the Defense Intelligence Agency, it was staffed traditionally by the CIA. Secret service documents from several member countries reveal Gladio to be a European-wide organization including Denmark, Norway, Holland, Spain, Turkey and Greece. All Gladio's secret information is coordinated in Brussels through the CPC, Clandestine Planning Committee. 
which meets periodically, with the chairmanship being handed from one country's secret service to the next. The entire organization is handled outside of NATO. Senator Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. Gladio started in Italy in 1951, when the general in charge of the secret services, General Broccoli, wrote to the head of the chief of staff, saying that he had to send six officers to an intelligence course in England. General Gerardo Serraville, commander of Gladio, 1971-74. I simply took part in demonstrations of teaching by staff of the English stay-behind, that is, how they train their men, above all, in the use of explosives and arms. As for the presence of other officers, I was with another Italian officer and English officers accompanied us. I don't even know whether they were army or intelligence officers. Decimo Garo, trainer, Capo Malagio, Gladio Base. I was in England for a week. It invited by the special forces. I was there for a week and I did some training with them. I did a parachute jump over the channel. I did some training with them. I got on well with them. Then I was at Erfurt to plan and carry out an exercise with the SAS. General Gerardo Serraville, commander of Gladio, 1971-74. My English friends and colleagues took me into their confidence and said that the other English special forces used to pass through too, including the special branch. If I remember correctly, it was created specifically to fight the, the IRA. Senator Roger Lallemand, head of the Belgian Parliamentary Inquiry into Gladio. At first, financing was guaranteed by the British and the Americans. We have established that the Belgian stay behind were given gold coins, notably gold coins money, for agents or instructors in time of war. There's a 140-man force, special forces. Basically, logistics, training, supply, planning. No active taking part because that would have destroyed the doctrine of deniability. So it was always We'll help you. We'll teach you how to do something, but you guys have to do it yourselves. And um, we're not even going to tell you what to do, but uh, we assume that you know. Mark Wyatt, CIA Deputy Chief in Rome, 1962 to 64. I was once in charge of Low Country Affairs, and I know how the Dutch and the Belgians and the Luxembourgeois felt about Stay Behind and how very carefully they handle it and how extremely secret it was. Uh, I know when I was chief in, uh, in, the, in the Low Countries, uh, 
the chief of service didn't want to discuss it in his office. We'd walk in the park <laughs> and talk about burials that were being put down, communication equipment, or whether or not the latest equipment they had, and so forth. André Moyen, Belgian Military Intelligence, 1938-1957. In September 45, I was called back by my boss, and he said to the Belgian Minister of Interior, Mr. de Fischer, Albert de Fischer said to me, I need you. Go and see my Italian colleague, Mario Silva. I went to Rome, and Mario Silva told me, we have set up a Stébéin network, Le Glaive Gladio. He showed how his forces could be active within six minutes. The Italian problem was different because their principal enemy was not the Soviet army, but the threat posed by Italian communism. They got 40% in the elections. This was Skelbas Wadi. That was why he had these task forces. Michael Ledeen, State Department consultant in Italy, Iran-Contra insider and assistant fabricator of the yellow cake uranium evidence for the war on Iraq. There were people inside the American government, George Kennan most notably, who were arguing that the chance of the Communist Party winning the 1948 elections was so great that the United States should use military force to stop the elections, not hold the elections at all, just cancel the elections send the army in and say to the communists we're not going to risk elections because there's a chance of your winning well this was laughed out of school by the president and the secretary of state and all other responsible government officials i mean none of that was ever put into effect and the, uh, the united states said okay well we'll run the elections and we'll compete in the elections mark wyatt cia deputy chief in rome general marshall and James Forrestal and uh, Alan Dulles all realized that in 1948 it was an absolutely critical moment and that the United States didn't have, they had an intelligence service which was quite new and young. It could collect intelligence, it could have counterintelligence, it could do everything, but it could not carry out a covert operation. There was no charter for it. And so that was remedied quite rapidly in 1948. Licio Gelli, Venerable Master of the P2 Masonic Lodge. Gladio was set up in 1948 and was operational by the end of the year. It was formed with a very careful choice of personnel. Many were in the Spanish Civil War. Many came from the ranks of the fascist Repubblica di Salo, people who could handle arms. They were in squads of nine people with two leaders. Someone had to know where the arms deposits cash, supplies and money were located. Francesco Cossiga, President of Italy from 1985 to 1992. 
1948, I'm referring to my experience as a youth, as a member of the Young Christian Democrats in my province, I was 20 years old, and nobody. We formed groups in the regional capital and in the other towns nearby, armed with light machine guns. Personally, I had a stim gun. The heads of the local Carabinari supplied us with hand grenades. In the event that the Communist Party would ignore the electorate in attempt to stage a coup, as in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Bulgaria. There was no need for Gladio to be activated in Italy in 1948. The CIA's first major covert operation succeeded without it. Large sums of money to political parties helped the Christian Democrats defeat Palmiro Togliatti and the Communists. Earlier there had been an attempt on Togliatti's life. It's never been discovered who was behind this, but the Italian press declared that it was the work of a madman. André Moyen, Belgian Military Intelligence, 1938-1957 to it has been claimed that the CIA created Gladio. Impossible. The CIA was created in September 49. Gladio existed in Italy, Switzerland, France, Belgium and probably Spain before September 49, before the creation of the CIA, but the Americans jumped on the bandwagon. Etienne Verhoeven, historian. After the war, a rather powerful communist party arose, having, I think, 21 uh, members of parliament, which was unique in Belgium, it never happened before, and given the international context of co communism, um, right-wing people were, of course, afraid of what they called communist danger in Belgium. Julien Lao was honorary president of the Belgian Communist Party which doesn't mean he was the most powerful man in the party, but he was a symbol for workers' action. He was arrested by the Germans and liberated in 45, and at that moment was, was appointed honorary president. Um, he was also the man who, uh, at the beginning of August 1950, when Prince Baudouin, who is now king of the Belgians, uh, took his oath, Lao was the man who cried in the parliament, Vive la République. King Leopold had been deported to Germany, then to Switzerland after the war, and centre-right and right-wing were agitating to bring him back on the throne. The left-wing was uh, opposed to the return of the king, so the right-wingers were for the return of the king, and some of these groups established in 1948 its first contacts within the American embassy, with an officer called Parker, who uh, insisted on not only the Leopoldist agitation, he insisted on the formation of stay-behind groups to assure anti-communist resistance. Julien Lao was murdered in 1950. The man who killed Lao came out of right-wing resistance group, which was called the Secret Army, l'Armée Secrète. And very soon after the war, he was engaged in anti-communist intelligence and action work. And the action work was done, among other people, with uh, Mr. André Moyen. André Moyen, Belgian Military Intelligence, 1938 to 1957. 
This was in August 49, three months later, a guy that I knew during the war, but not from my service, came to me and said, I need your advice, you have experience. He told me that he killed Lao. I said, you're mad, that Lao was nothing, a front man. He said that he killed Lao and gave details only he could know about. Whom he had been with, the weapon, the car, everything. Adolf confessed on his deathbed to the assassination of Julian Lao, a communist leader. The second part of the trilogy begins with some shots of train stations in Italy. Footage suddenly changes to people being rescued from a bomb explosion. Harry Mitchell. My daughter had gone on holiday with her boyfriend, and five days into their holiday on the 2nd of August, they were killed in the Bologna train bombing explosion. And they managed to identify Catherine's body uh, later on Monday, but she was uh, horribly disfigured. They only recognised her by and Miss Selfridge's uh, blaze. In 1980, a bomb exploded at Bologna railway station, which killed 86 people. Six years later, an official report revealed the existence of an invisible government in Italy, run by the state secret services and groups of political terrorists. It also identified a secret military and civilian organization under which neo-fascist groups were allowed to commit atrocities against civilians for political motives. Senator Libero Guantieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. We were to deal with unsolved acts of terror, starting from the first major bombing in the Piazza Fontana, then the attacks on trains, from the one in Brescia to the massacre at Bologna station, and lesser attacks with fewer victims, such as Petiano. Vincenzo Vinciguerra, former member of a neo-fascist group, Ordine Nuovo. Petiano was an act of war with a very simple motive. The police forces, the security forces, and these political groups which make use of the secret services and the security forces have manipulated Italian neo-fascism. They've been doing this for a long time, ever since 1945-1946. Pateno was born as an act of revolt against these manipulation and retaliation against the state. On May the 31st, 1972, the Carabinieri in Petiano received a phone call. And that is where we're going to leave it 
for today due to time. Many thanks to everybody who contributed to their voice to that adaption. If you'd like to help, you can still do so. You can email me, unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net. This and all previous shows are available for download from MP3 Archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie.